The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Brad Vermerlin, author of the excellent new book, Reformed Resurgence, The New Calvinist Movement and the Battle Over American Evangelicalism, just published in December by Oxford University Press. This book is a sociological study exploring a movement within American evangelical Protestantism since the turn of the millennium that has been variously labeled the New Calvinism or Neo-Reformed Christianity. Thanks for joining us, Brad, and welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Brad, we're eager to dive into your work, but first, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, I finished my PhD in sociology at the University of Notre Dame in 2016. Um, I spent a few years, four, three or four years, doing research and consulting in the church world. Now I am a research associate in the Department of Sociology at the um, University of Texas at Austin. Just started there about six or seven months ago. Well, that's great, Brad. So your book titled Reformed Resurgence, uh, well, that title itself requires a little bit of unpacking. Uh, who's the subject of your study? Who are these reformed or neo-reformed or new Calvinists? And then maybe just a little word about the mixed method approach that you use to collect your data. Certainly. So the title of the book reflects the idea that since the turn of the millennium, there's been this resurgence of reform theology or Calvinism, and specifically within the landscape of American evangelicalism. Um, We'll get into what that means and what a, a resurgence looks like. But the idea is that there's been this big upsurge, especially among younger evangelical Protestants, of interest in the reform tradition and in Calvinism, as well as some of the other social and moral issues that come along with that in this particular movement. So the book is a qualitative study. It's based on a mixed methods approach using interviews, participant observation, or ethnography, and um, lots of content analysis of printed and online materials. So I interviewed um, 75 leaders in American evangelicalism from all over the country, both Calvinist and non-Calvinist, people who are deeply committed to the Reformed tradition and people who are critical of it. I spent a total of just over six months traveling the country, and I went to three of the largest, most influential Calvinistic megachurches in the United States. Those are Marshall Church in Seattle, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, and Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. 
So I spent a lot of time at those churches, interviewed many of the leaders at those churches, and supplemented all of that with a deep dive into the digital and print world of American evangelicalism. You know, I'm curious what interested you in this particular group. Uh, You've mentioned this isn't exactly the largest pocket of American evangelicalism. What made this group catch your attention and, and who else might be interested in this study? Yeah, I mentioned in the preface of the book that I actually hadn't heard of Reformed Theology until 2007 when I was doing a a different project. Around 2007, 2008, 2009, like a lot of people, I think, started to pay attention to these new preachers on the scene who we were just hearing about or something. And I was paying attention to it as a Christian. That continued for some years, and I went to grad school and started to do work in sociology, studying movements and culture and religion and all these things. And what really got me interested in studying this movement as a scholar is that people weren't really talking about it as a religious phenomenon. We we're talking about all sorts of religious phenomenon, um, phenomena in the country, but not this. And I remember going to academic conferences, and especially younger scholars would go into their meetings and they'd talk about whatever research they're working on. It'd be correlations between certain variables on a survey and church attendance or belief in God and sort these sorts of things and some other really interesting qualitative projects. And then we'd go out in the hallway and, and the first thing we, they'd say is, did you hear what Mark Driscoll said last week? And so it struck me that there was this energy and interest among younger scholars of religion, but, but nobody, was, nobody that I knew was writing on it. In terms of who else might be interested in this book, sociologists who study religion, uh, especially American religion, would be the primary target audience for this book. That would include professors, grad students, advanced undergrads. Uh, But I think it also would be of interest to people like you who are in more of the theology world, people in seminary, seminary professors, and also pastors and religious leaders, and of course, your ever-popular general reader. You you make a reflection towards the the end of your first chapter about the the, the field of sociology of religion about the need to attend closer to theological issues. I thought this was really insightful. Maybe could you share a little bit more about that, and maybe what are some of the the, the alternatives to attending to theological issues, and and how you're trying to move the field forward. Right. This is one of the main take-home points that I mentioned at the end of the book. Um, I say paying attention to theological particularities. Basically, the idea is that this book would be impossible to write from a sociological perspective if one didn't know about the different views of soteriology among American evangelicals, and a few other things too, different views of men and women, the different approaches to theological ethics, um, really even down to complex things, um, the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology, or um, um, different approaches to missiology, cessationism, and continuationism in terms of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are all things that would need to be known and understood in order to study this particular religious movement well, because it's a religious, it's a, it's a movement of religious particularities. And so if scholars approach American religion with these kind of broad categories of just evangelical Protestant, without understanding the different views within that category, this, this book would, would make no sense and it'd be impossible to write. So um, I think there's good work to be done when people measure religious attendance or belief in God on surveys in some ways, but um, there's a lot to be gained from digging deeper into the actual phenomenological consciousness of religious people and the issues they care about, the issues that theology nerds might think about 
and how that plays out as a social phenomenon. Hmm. That's really interesting. You've told us generally who makes up this new Calvinist movement, but you make an interesting observation in the book that perhaps the new Calvinists have had an outsized influence due to strategic maneuvering within certain evangelical institutions. What are some of the key networks or schools or publishers that have become particularly important to this group? Right. So you have the three big megachurches that I talked about. Other organizations and networks that would be really important to the neo-reform movement would be, as some of your listeners would probably know, the Gospel Coalition, the Acts 29 Church Planning Network, Together for the Gospel, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Crossway as a book publisher, the Passion Conferences a little bit includes John Piper always and some other Calvinistic teachers, but also some who aren't Calvinistic. So um, just the popularity of the Passion Conferences among younger people would make it important for this movement. People tied to those organizations and networks, I think of Kevin DeYoung, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, people like that who I didn't visit their places of work or their churches, but um, those they also would be important to the movement. So it's um, it's a big movement in the sense that it's it's um, it includes many networks and organizations and councils but it's also fairly circumscribed there's a when when, when people say the neo-reformed movement or the new calvinism there it's not like there's a thousand actors that come to mind there's there's more like 20 or 30 really big names and big organizations that are able to be identified so it actually doesn't encapsulate all of reformed protestants in american evangelicalism or kind of around the orbit of american evangelicalism the movement isn't in other words all calvinists in american evangelicalism or all calvinistic leaders it's a subset of them who enjoy particular prominence uh, on the on the conference circuit with their mega churches uh, especially among young people that's good so what are some of the distinctives that would mark this neo-reformed or new Calvinist? Certainly Calvinism isn't a new theological tradition, so what's making this new? What's uh, making this a resurgence? Right. So after the introduction, the next chapter is entirely descriptive, and it lays out all of these actors I've been talking about, as well as the distinctive beliefs and features of the movement. Obviously, the most distinctive belief of the movement is a Calvinistic view of salvation. For some of your listeners who might not know what that is, it's um, commonly summarized with the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, which are five doctrines that came out of the canons of Dort. It's Calvinistic view of salvation, which is basically that God predestines people for salvation. In other words, that God is sovereign over who is saved and who is not saved, which is controversial in American evangelicalism because it gets into all sorts of ethical issues about, well, you know, if God predestines some people to be saved, how can God be good and for people who end up going to hell and stuff like that. But aside from Calvinistic soteriology, some of the other features of the movement, probably the next biggest one would be a complementarian view of men and women. Complementarian is a evangelical word that basically means that men and women naturally complement each other in certain ways as opposed to egalitarianism, which is basically that um, men and women are, um, in a sense, almost interchangeable. It would include female pastors in the home. There's little distinct roles for husband and wife. So complementarian view of men and women would be big in this movement. There's some nuance there about strong and weak complementarianism and how that relates to patriarchy that I, I won't get into. But 
basically a conservative evangelical view of men and women and their relationship to one another is huge in this movement. Um, a certain view of mission, although I talk in the book about how out of the 75 evangelical leaders I interviewed, none of them based, none of them said, no, I'm not into being missional or being on an evangelistic mission in my community. So um, while the new Calvinism is mission-driven, most or all of American evangelical leaders are mission-driven. So that serves little to set off the movement analytically. I get into continuation and cessationism in terms of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I sort through that for the movement. They do tend to lean a bit more toward continuationism compared to older Reformed and Presbyterian-type folks. There's some other features that I get into about the the balance of the life of the mind and religious affections holding um, mind and heart together in the movement. So there's lots of features. None of those features are things that only the new Calvinists hold, but it's things that as a package together set this movement apart from the other alternatives within American evangelicalism. You asked about the resurgence of Calvinism and what that looks like exactly. One of the big ideas of the book is kind of this tension between a resurgence numerically and a resurgence in other ways. That's really one of the core issues of the book is that I argue that there has been a growth in Calvinism since the turn of the millennium, among the type of people who attend ETS meetings, the Evangelical Theological Society, interest among young people in seminaries, just the general religious consumers in the United States, but that the numerical growth isn't the most important part of this movement. And especially it doesn't constitute a resurgence in the sense that there have been other pockets and expressions of American evangelicalism that have grown numerically just as much. You can think of prosperity, Pentecostalism, uh, uh, various popular tele, uh, televangelistic leaders. There's been a really a consolidation of progressive evangelicals since the turn of the millennium, especially as an outworking of the emerging or emergent church conversation. And all of this runs against the backdrop of a huge evangelical infrastructure. So I make the case in the book that the numerical growth of Calvinism isn't the most important or interesting aspect of the reform resurgence, interestingly enough. The question then arises, what are the other ways? What, in what sense is this a resurgence if it's not about numbers? And that's really, really where you get into the heart of the book. And so if I had to summarize the storyline of the book in just one phrase, it would be the social construction of a religious movement. It's about how the new Calvinism as a religious movement is what someone's call socially constructed, or what I prefer to say in the book, relationally constructed. It's about different religious actors relating to each other in certain ways that I get into in the book. And out of all of these processes together, a new thing, the new Calvinist movement, emerges into existence as a new religious movement around 2006, 2008, that um, is more qualitative and symbolic in its, in its prominence and power. That's not to say that it didn't exist in 2004 or 2005 in terms of all of these organizations and networks. But as a distinct social phenomenon, as a social fact, it sprang into existence, so to speak, in the middle of the, um, the first decade of, of, you know, after the turn of the millennium, through lots of social, relational, institutional processes. So that's what the book gets into is how did that happen? And we'll get into more about what that involves. It involves a lot of strategic positioning on the parts of religious leaders, and it involves a lot of conflict and infighting among evangelical leaders. 
Yeah, you started to touch on this um, as a central idea in your study. This new Calvinist movement is particularly formed in, by their posture against other evangelical pockets or tribes. As your subtitle indicates, you, you call it the battle over American evangelicalism. Who are the main other players that you you kind of outline in this kind of fourfold quadrant? Right. So you can't understand the reform resurgence without understanding what it's resurging against. You can't just look at the movement in a vacuum and say, hey, look, there's been an increase of Calvinism. One of the basic steps, one of the basic moves that the book makes is to place the new Calvinism within the broader context of American evangelicalism and even more so within the broader United States kind of context of the ecological factors affecting American evangelicalism. So within American evangelicalism, you have, for lack of a better term, what I just call mainstream evangelicalism. This would be Christianity today, most evangelical megachurches, just kind of what most people mean when they say and think about American evangelicalism. There is some nuance there. I break out in one part of the book, one kind of subset of mainstream evangelicalism that a lot of mainstream evangelicals would say actually isn't mainstream, and that's prosperity Pentecostalism, kind of Joel Osteen or Olstein and um, comparable preachers. But according to sociologists, that's still kind of mainstream evangelicalism. So you have the broad backdrop of evangelicalism writ large. I also draw out neo-Anabaptist evangelicals. This would be people who are, they kind of take their cues from Mennonite faith tradition and other comparable Anabaptist communities, but with a more of an evangelical bent and focus that they're for the neo. This would include also the new monastic movement, if people are familiar with that category. The main figure that usually springs to mind with the new monasticism is Shane Claiborne. So the neo-Anabaptist pocket of American evangelicalism places a strong emphasis on pacifism, racial reconciliation, serving communities, loving the poor, really uh, being a disciple of Christ in the world, living out the Sermon on the Mount, those types of things. So that's one major sub-pocket of American evangelicalism. Another one that I identify and that serves as a main foil throughout the book is what I call progressive evangelicalism. This would be the remnant and what grew out of the most progressive stream of the emerging church 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Names that come to mind would be Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, Tony Jones. And these are people who still are within the orbit of evangelicalism, but who are trying to do things like re-narrate the Christian narrative, move toward more open and inclusive views of gender or sexuality. And they would have overall a more progressive view toward religion, but they still would want to orbit around kind of the evangelical world. Some might say that they resemble, they look more like mainline liberal Protestants than evangelicals. And in some ways that's true, but because they grew out of the emerging church conversation, I still think it's appropriate to include them as one expression of American evangelicalism, although it's not anything like what most people think of when they think of American evangelicalism, and many wouldn't want to call themselves evangelicals. So those are kind of, that's kind of the lay of the land in terms of the landscape of American evangelicalism. So you have, with all of that, you, you also have this neo-reform movement, this conservative, traditional, Calvinistic, kind of a strong theological and cultural program that is in some ways reacting against these things. It's reacting against each pocket in different ways. 
So against the progressives, they say, you're way too progressive on theology, on sexuality, on gender, on all sorts of issues. And they're pushing against that. They're pushing against um, the neo-Anabaptists for various reasons for being egalitarian on gender or too atheological in some ways. They're pushing against the seeker-sensitive impulse of a lot of mainstream evangelical megachurches. So there's a lot of these these topics and issues that form the... um, the core of what's being fought over. And so this neo-reform movement places itself as a, as a conservative um, stalwart against all these other expressions of American evangelicalism that in various ways are not living up to certain standards and expectations of, of, in the views of the neo-reform, the best of what evangelical Protestantism can or should be. In the most dense chapter, you discuss several of the existing approaches of measuring the strength of a, of a religious movement. Could you describe a little bit about what tools were available and then what drew you to this framework of strategic action fields? Uh, how did the field theoretic model provide you with um, tools to help understand and explain this new Calvinism? Right. So I managed to pack all of my theory into one chapter, which I don't know if that was a good move. I think it was. But it's an important chapter because the book isn't just about the neo-reform movement. The book is ultimately about religion in the modern world, and specifically conservative religion in the modern world, and how, in light of conversations about secularity and secularization, traditional or conservative religion can flourish. There are a handful of existing models in the sociology of religion of how that happens. Um, I spell it five in the book. And I basically talk about how each one has a nugget of truth in it, but as a whole is incomplete or ill-suited to explain the new, the new Calvinist movement. It jumped out to me that field theory, something called field theory in sociology, was a good theoretical apparatus to apply to this movement for a few reasons. What I've, I've already touched on them. So the putting this movement in its broader relational context within the broader landscape of American evangelicals. That type of landscape or broader relational arena is what sociologists call field. And we can get into the nuances of field theory if you'd like, but it's basically, you can, you, the, the word landscape or arena starts to get close to what sociologists mean when they say a field. And it's, it has two, two sides to it. On one side, it is something like a force field where your position in the field or in the arena creates in actors a certain disposition, a certain kind of impulse to move or act in certain ways. So it's like a gravitational force field where you your position in the field, defined by certain axes of resources and power and so on, correspond to certain dispositions. On the other side, in addition to being like a force field, fields are like battlefields. So it, it's there's also this fighting aspect to it where different actors in the arena are jockeying for one another for position and advantage in the field. So these two aspects of fields come together in sociological field theory in the metaphor of a game. Now, when I say a game, people might think that that implies triviality, but I don't mean it in that way. I I just mean that you have these people in different positions with different dispositions toward what to do in the arena, and that overall it's a contest. And so I treat and I analyze American evangelicalism as embodying game-like infighting and contestation. So that's one reason that the field theoretic approach jumped out at me as an important theoretical framework. 
another is that one expression of field theory is something called strategic action fields. And the strategic action aspect of field theory struck me as really important for understanding the neo-reform movement because neo-reform leaders, just think of John Piper, Mark Driscoll, Tim Keller, are really good at strategizing, thinking about how to put their best foot forward, how to create good church experiences, how to um, put, put forward a good public face for evangelical Christianity. And a lot of this is intentional strategic action. This is an element that I maybe should have drawn out more in the book, but one of the things I hope people take away is that this strategic element of religious action is, um, is important for the neo-reform movement, and it actually goes a long way toward explaining how conservative religion can flourish in the modern world. Because all previous models and theories of, of conservative religion in the modern world emphasize things like anxiety over status, whether that's economic status or cultural status, cultural happenstance where a religious movement or community just happens to have the right cultural tools to enjoy vitality in a certain way. There's other things that get drawn in like supply and demand dynamics. But what I wanted to show in this book is that religious strength is actually something that can be fought for and won in the context of the modern world through strategic action, making good arguments, moving into cities, in some ways being polished, having really interesting things to say, putting together good church services and those types of things, which is an understudied aspect of American religion, in my view, in American sociology. So those are some of the reasons why I was drawn to the field theoretic approach. I'm actually working on a a paper right now called Religious Marketing Revisited, where I draw out some of these elements in terms of moving away from a view of American religion that focuses on markets, religious markets, and instead focuses on religious fields and the difference that makes for the actions of religious leaders. That's one of the theoretical nuances of the book that I hope people don't miss. Yeah, it's it's a really helpful theory that you've put forward. And really, from, from that point forward, you're kind of building or, or applying the theory to the data that you collected. So you have a chapter on the precipitating causes, and then a chapter that gets even more into this game-like contestation. Let's start with the precipitating causes. So this is um, dealing with the what really caused this resurgence in the first place, both from a broad cultural, just kind of American context, but then also from the the field of, of American evangelicalism. Tell us a little bit about what you saw as precipitating or catalyzing this movement. Right. So at the end of the theoretical chapter, I list a series of mechanisms as causes that together produced the neo-reform movement. Um, it, um, it represents the actions of religious leaders and also the broader ecological factors and processes that come together to produce the neo-reform movement. If you look at them at their highest level, there's 17 mechanisms that I spell out. Some of them are broken down into subsidiary mechanisms. Um, so there's more, more than 20 that I get into. And the whole second half of the book is a detailed explication of each mechanism, um, as well as some of their relationships with each other. And that creates actually the whole back end of the book and the whole story of the, of the resurgence of reform theology. So some of those mechanisms are what I call precipitating causes in the sense that they, um, they came before, they facilitated the, the onset of fighting in the evangelical field. And they happen, most of them happen earlier in time. So for example, one of the things I talk about is um, 
9-11, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, and how for a whole generation of young evangelicals that raise new questions about evil and objective morality and religion in the world, and how the new Calvinism was one response to 9-11. Another would be the kind of broad therapeutic ethos of American culture in some ways um, for for the last several decades, and how that has seeped into American evangelicalism and how the neo-reform movement is a response to that therapeutic ethos. There's also what I call the gender and sexual revolutions of the 1960s and how that has played out over the last several decades and created a backdrop that is an important part of the conversation that these neo-reform evangelicals are having. Um, The internet and the emergence of the internet and digital media, media, especially in the mid-90s and after, as a viable tool for evangelicals to use is um, really important for understanding the neo-reform movement. The neo-reform movement is almost as much an online movement as it is a flesh and blood movement of um, Calvinistic evangelicals. So I get into the internet as one of those precipitating causes. Another that um, we've mentioned already briefly was the conversation that started in the late 1990s and really took off in the first five years after the turn of of the millennium known as the emerging church conversation and how that related to postmodern philosophy and postmodernity as a cultural circumstance and how evangelicals should or thought they should respond to the postmodern condition. So all of these things are um, deeper causes, precipitating factors that stirred up the pot, so to speak, of American evangelicalism, um, leading to the need for evangelical leaders to wrestle through many of these issues. I should note at this point that I keep mentioning evangelical leaders because the book doesn't really get much into lay evangelicals, ordinary evangelical people. And this is a, this is a battle that is fought at the level of religious leadership. And so even though there's lots of ordinary lay people who make up the substance of the neo-reform movement, people who attend church regularly or attend these conferences. The book focuses on the, the leadership aspect. So all of these factors and more are, um, the, 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 the chapter spells out these kind of deeper issues. The chapter also includes, as a kind of background information for the fight that's coming starting around the year 2007, 2008, what I call the rules of the game, which is classic language and field theory for kind of the terms on which the, the fight is fought. And for these, I found the Bevington quadrilateral very helpful. Um, and that wasn't just me imposing these four things onto the phenomenon, but they actually emerged from the data too. Um, those are kind of the four features of evangelicals, biblicism, crucicentrism, activism, and conversionism. And these sort of key theological and, and, and Christian impulses that are really the terms of the fight. And so when things look to go awry from the perspective of a, of a new Calvinist leader, a lot of times they'll say, not in these terms, but that, that is you're violating the rule of biblicism. You're not taking the Bible seriously enough, or you're violating the rule of crucicentrism. You're you know, approaching the crucifixion of Christ on the cross in some, some inadequate way or something. So another precipitating cause is what I've talked about earlier, the idea that these religious leaders 
and all the different expressions and pockets of evangelicalism turn out to have quite different dispositions on how to approach the Christian faith. And they map on really well to the different positions in the field. For, ne- for neo-reformed leaders, there's a strong ontological disposition about reality, order, what is real, um, heaven and hell being real places, God being a big God who is there with certain characteristics that you can know. For progressive evangelicals, for example, there's a strong epistemological disposition where it's all about doubting and knowing. And how can you know? And how can you be so sure? And what if we imagine this a different way? For neo-Anabaptist evangelicals, there's this really strong ethics disposition where, as I said earlier, it's uh, their their first foot forward is almost always how to live in the world, how to be a disciple of Christ, how to, you know, live a Christian life uh, modeled after the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus. Um, And for mainstream evangelicals, uh, their disposition tends to be much more of a pragmatic approach to um, the Christian life and ministry. And I talk, I go through some of the titles of mainstream evangelical books and how it shows this kind of self-helpy type disposition and and a um a more very pragmatic how to get your finances together how to get your life in order how to have a happy marriage how to raise good christian kids and that type of thing so this kind of mapping of the different the different positions in the field of american evangelicalism i argue map onto at least four distinct different dispositions that help explain and illuminate why there's so much conflict in the american evangelical field because if you have somebody with a strong ontological disposition, like, you know, marks the New Calvinist movement, and they encounter somebody with a really a deep epistemological disposition toward the Christian faith, there's going to be clash there. And each one rubs up against the other in, in ways that create conflict. Um, so those are some of the things that I talk about in that chapter, as all of these are precipitating causes that happened even before anybody was ever talking about the New Calvinist movement in 2006, seven, and eight, that, um, that helped to explain the rise of the movement. Yeah, I thought that those four first foot forward dispositions was was absolutely um, one of the most heuristically valuable pieces of your book. So I was really glad that you touched on that just now. So let's talk a little bit about this this game like contestation. You you outline about a dozen or so key strategies or maneuvers that have formed and solidified the new Calvinist movement. Could could you share maybe two or three of those that you found particularly illuminating or maybe surprising? Certainly. So again, this is spelling out the field theoretic approach to religious strength. And a big part of that is strategic positioning in the field. A strategic position I draw from the business literature on this isn't supposed to appeal to everybody. It's just supposed to be um, a strategy, something that sets you apart to, to, to attract a certain type of person. That's not to say that it's disingenuous or this kind of economic maneuver. They really believe these things and they really think they're helpful, but they do end up being strategic positions. So a few of those would be, for example, making strong appeals to young men to man up and be a, you know, a strong biblical man uh, in certain ways to get married, have kids, form a family, build your career the type of discourse that you hear or heard from Mark Driscoll and Darren Patrick um, and, and, and some others. And that is broadly expressed in the council on biblical manhood and womanhood. So this kind of emphasis on masculinity 
they also talk some about femininity, but there really, there really is, as John Piper famously said, this masculine bent. Um, so that's a strategic position in the field of American evangelicalism, not because every evangelical believes this or wants to hear it, but that it serves a purpose in a certain segment of the field that um, turns out to be a strategic position because there's a lot of young men that want or need to hear that. I th- Personally, I think that since Driscoll moved on from Seattle in 2014, I think it was the, I think it was the end of 2013, Jordan Peterson has in some ways filled that gap for some young evangelical men. But that's, so that's one strategic position or strategic maneuver. Another would be the move into cities. Tim Keller has been a big herald of the importance of cities for evangelical Protestants, considering the growth of urbanization in the long run, that a certain percentage of people are going to end up living in cities, that Christians and churches need to be there, and also that um, that cities are strategic for the production of, of culture and the influence of culture. So there's a section on the another one, for example, as a strategic position would be this way that Calvinistic evangelical leaders tend to present themselves publicly as taking the Bible and God and other sorts of theological tools more seriously than their field competitors. There's this kind of matter of factness to the Calvinistic approach to evangelicalism that basically says, listen, if you're going to be theologically serious, if you're going to take the Bible literally or seriously, if you're going to, you know, really be a serious evangelical Protestant, then you're basically going to end up being part of this neo-reform movement. And if you aren't, then you are being loosey-goosey or something like that. And I go through and I show examples of religious leaders saying this, basically. And this, is a, this isn't particularly new. You have, you know, I think it was Spurgeon saying something along these lines in, uh, in, the, in, in centuries past where it was you know, Calvinism is just the gospel and things like that. So there's this um, confidence and this um, presenting, especially I think presenting to younger Christians this kind of matter of factness that um, many, many believe that this is just, if you're going to be a serious Christian, you have to be a Calvinist. And that, that turns out to be a, a strategic move. That's not, again, not to say a disingenuous move. They, they do believe these things. So there is these, you know, I always try to footnote in the book, these tensions of like motivation, which gets a little sketchy in the book. But so they really do believe these things, but it's also strategic, especially in relation to other expressions of evangelicalism. So just think of mainstream evangelicalism, which in some ways is therapeutic. There's a, it's in some ways it's sentimentalized, self-help those types of things, kind of Bible light, seeker sensitive stuff. So the neo reform movement provides a real alternative for, for some of these other expressions and for younger Christians who, you know, are looking for maybe more rigorous theological studies. So that'd be three out of many strategic positions and maneuvers that I talk about in the book. And again, all of these build on each other as causes to produce the movement. And to reinforce the movement. In a sense, your study could have been repeated at least three other times, focusing on the other main players in the, the field of American evangelicalism. So maybe as we as we wrap up here uh, on talking about your book, how does your study of the New Calvinism shed light on the broader field of, of American evangelical Protestantism? 
what do you see as the the opportunities and challenges for those players in the next decade? Yeah, I could talk for an hour about that. There's so much there. Um, and I really only touch on this near the end of the book. So the, the book as a whole starts out descriptive, and then it kind of sets the stage, and then it gets explanatory. And it's all about religious strength and religious vitality, religious strategy. But then it takes a, a turn near the end toward kind of the broader landscape or field of American evangelicalism. And what I say is that looking at the building strength of this neo-reform movement, or at least building back when I was studying it in 2014, 15, and 16, it also kind of portends the, the broader kind of falling apart of American evangelicalism because you have these, fe- these, these different pockets fighting with each other. I think in recent years, in the last one or two years, based on my loose observations of the American evangelical field, you actually see less fighting, but not because they're getting along, that's because they're starting to ignore each other. So in the last chapter of the book, which is just called American Evangelicalism and Hypermodernity, so basically an overview of the American evangelical field in light of the preceding analysis. And what I basically say is that while the trend line of affiliation of American evangelicalism has been steady for the last several years, and it's declined if you look only at white evangelicals, but my, my, my study is, is not specifically on white evangelicalism. So it includes, so if you include all races, it's steady. But even though the trend line has been steady, there's been this, um, this disintegration, in a sense, of the evangelical tradition since the middle of the, of the 20th century. So the evangelical movement, or what it was originally called in kind of the age of Billy Graham, the neo-evangelical movement, was always this kind of weird amalgam of different people with different theological impulses. There were Anabaptists, there were Reformed, even back in the 1940s and 50s. But I think after several decades in light of the gender and sexual revolutions, the internet, 9-11, postmodernism, and all of these other things, combined with the democratized reading of the text in American evangelicalism, evangelicalism, you have now this really unsettled, unstable landscape or field. And I actually call it entropy in the sense of what was previously a cultural system kind of falling apart. So that's kind of where the book ends, is explaining and looking at the entropy of evangelicalism, the falling apart of of evangelicalism in the United States in light of these battles and in light of these conflicts, in light of this kind of game-like fighting that's going on at the level of leadership. So the very last part of the book, Appendix D, is called, Is the New Calvinism Past Its Prime? And um, I think... In some ways, yes, it is. Um, the The movement is um, it's losing steam. Its leaders are kind of going in a few different directions. And that this makes sense because the, the main argument of the book, again, is that the neo-reform movement is and was relationally constructed. And it was only in a secondary sense about the numbers. And so if it can be relationally constructed, it can be relationally deconstructed. Because if the leaders of the movement start to um, have trouble in their own relationships with one another. So, for example, if John MacArthur um, has trouble relating to some other leaders in the movement because of differences on social justice, that's going to create a rift in what was previously a more coherent um, movement. And and you can do this with other examples too. And there's also examples of you know, I know um, Darren Patrick passed away of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. R.C. Sproul has passed away. Mars Hill Church in Seattle fragmented and became autonomous churches. 
Tim Keller and John Piper are no longer the preaching pastors um, of of their churches. Vadi Balcom moved to Africa. Josh Harris announced that he's divorcing his wife and no longer a Christian. Um, Julian Trevision had his marital problems with um, extramarital affairs and divorce. So there's all sorts of things that um, there could be a whole other book written on um, kind of where this movement is now. It's it's in a weaker spot than it was definitely at the height of my project when I was traveling the country and interviewing people in 2013 and 14. Yeah, well, Brad, thank you so much for um, coming to talk with us about your book. I think your studies, I, I think it's very illuminating and um, offers a lot of great insights into the state of of American evangelicalism today. Before we say goodbye, uh, I'd like to ask if there's uh, if you'd like to share with us anything about what you're currently working on. Yeah, so um, like I said, I just recently got back into academia six months ago after a stint in the church research and consulting world. So I'm I've just started a second book on what sociology as a discipline would look like or would need to look like if it were informed by the Christian intellectual and moral tradition. Um, conceived as the great tradition, which would include um, intellectual resources from the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant streams of Christianity. Um, so that's a big project, and it's probably going to be a long project um, because it's it's not empirical. It's entirely theoretical and, and um, involves a lot of – it's the world of ideas. So that's a fun book to write. Um, and with my – new position at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm working with Mark Rognaris, who is um, famous or infamous for his work in sociology on gender and sexuality. So I am making, beginning to make some moves in um, into the, soci- the social scientific study of gender and sexuality, um, some projects that are currently under underway or under review. So, um, and I also mentioned uh, the paper I'm working on, on religious marketing revisited, which basically takes some of the deeper, more theoretical themes of, of my book and tries to build on them and draw them out in ways that are crystal clear. So those are the biggest things I'm working on right now. Well, those sound like great projects. Look forward to following them and learning from you more in the, as those projects develop. So again, we've been talking to Brad Vermerlin, author of Reformed Resurgence, The New Calvinism and the Battle Over American Evangelicalism, available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for joining us, Brad. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thank you for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Visit our page on newbooksnetwork.com for more interviews. There you can also find a link to purchase any of the books featured on the show and to learn more about our authors and hosts. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.